0: we're carrying on our series in Luke looking at who this Jesus is, what he's come to do and what he offers to every single one of us. So it's Luke chapter 5 verses um, 17 to 32, and it's actually page 861, sorry, page 861. As we as you're getting there, I'll just pray for us as we uh, begin and Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this opportunity on a Sunday morning to come before you as a gathered church, to read your word, to sing your praises, to sing that all we have is Christ. Help us this morning to grow, to love you more, to understand more of what you have to teach us, and to leave this morning singing the name of Jesus in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 5. Verse 17 to 32. So if you want to follow along. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in, Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. An amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him and Levi made him a great feast in his house and there was a great there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them and the pharisees and scribes grumbled at his disciples and said why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners and Jesus answered them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance what a great verse I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance really this is God's word and we pray that we'll be able to understand hopefully more of what this teaches us and what this teaches us about Jesus it's great these verses are fantastic I think these verses answer the fundamental question of what makes Christianity different from every other religion What makes Christianity different from every other type of belief system? The the question we sometimes get is, aren't all religions kind of the same? Aren't they all leading up to the same God? Kind of this picture, if you picture it, you have this mountain and God is up the top of it. And at the bottom is this myriad of religions, all these different stalls with different roots up to the same God. And I think these verses help us realize that christianity is fundamentally different from every other religion it's in a completely different category of this idea that we get different roots up to the same god and i think verses 17 to 32 is one of the answers as to what makes christianity fundamentally different to every other religion we're going to look at it in three different points and actually three different questions This passage, verses 17 to 32, the first kind of scene that we have here asks the question, answers the question: what has Jesus actually come to do? What is he here to do? How does he have any power to do what he does? And then the last section kind of tells us who exactly Jesus came for. So the three points that we're going to go through this morning: what, how, and who. And I wonder as we read that first couple of verses, verses 17 to 26, that first scene, that first snapshot that Luke gives us, did you get memories of kind of Sunday school lessons? Was it kind of memories that are filled with Haribos and sugar highs and just kind of sitting there? Or if you grew up in Sunday school, the kind of remember the felt board where you'd put characters on to kind of tell the story and you'd have the characters moving around and then kind of lowered down? That's kind of the thing that I thought of when I saw this this busy house, this hustle and bustle, four friends carrying their uh, other friend along. They realize that the house is so full, the disabled access is kind of unavailable. So they have to go up to the roof. Then you see kind of this like dust falling down and clumps of clay falling down. And then Jesus is standing there in this busy house teaching away. And this man just drops down in front of him and Jesus heals him the man rolls up his mat and the whole crowd cheers and he clears off. That's kind of the memories we have of this passage. We see these felt board images of Jesus healing, this great story of how Jesus can heal. But as I was reading through this this week, and actually we taught this exact same lesson in SU this week, I realized that sometimes I think, wow, this is great. This tells me who Jesus is. He is Powerful, he can work miracles. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more going on than I give it credit for. Because the the gospel writers are meticulous, they are doing something really specific, really meticulous in what they're doing. Because of the story was that Jesus is a miracle worker, we're going to get 30 episodes of that throughout the whole gospel, and it's just going to get a bit repetitive. I think I feel that sometimes when I read through Luke's gospel or John's gospel that this tells me that Jesus is God and he can heal, and then this story tells me Jesus is God and he can heal, and this story tells me Jesus is God and he can heal. And I think we don't fully give the gospel writers the credit they deserve because actually what's going on is far more than that. And luckily, in these verses, Jesus tells us specifically why he did what he did. Jesus tells us that this is way more than just a healing miracle. Look at the text. We often miss this, or we don't miss it. We often focus on the wrong things, not give the center stage what is deserved. Verse 19 Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let the man down with his bed through the tiles into the midst of Jesus. And look at what Jesus says. When he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus says to the man lying before him, your sins are forgiven. Then the Pharisees and scribes get a bit annoyed. They say, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone, who does he think he is that he can do this? And I mean, it's true. Jesus could just point at him and say, your sins are forgiven. And there's absolutely no proof that he's done that. There's no proof that he's able to do that. And so Jesus does one of those things that Jesus does, where he kind of twists the whole thing around and you think, wow, I could never have thought of doing it that way. I could never have imagined that is the way that you would do it. He turns and says, okay, I can't. Prove to you kind of visibly right now that his sins are forgiven. So I'm going to show you that I can make him walk to prove to you that his sins are forgiven. I am going to prove that I have the utmost authority. Prove to you that I am the son of man. And he just turns around and says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The thing that I am always guilty of focusing on, the healing is meant to point to something way bigger. It's meant to point to something way bigger. He can forgive sins. The healing of this man's life, the healing of this man's legs are massive and literally life-changing for him. But Jesus knows that one day, this man is going to lie down on his mat again and die. He knows there's a way bigger problem than just his legs not working, him being paralysed. Jesus knows that if he heals him, it's only temporary. He sees a way bigger problem. He sees this man's greatest need, and heals his heart and then he heals his legs. In saying this, God really does see our problems. He sees our brokenness, he sees our prayers and our frailties our worries, our family, the brokenness that we live in. But first he sees our deepest need. He offers us forgiveness of our sins. Our relationship with God, he sees that. He sees all the problems that we have, the worries and the stress. And he comes and forgives our sins. He sees our bent against our Creator. And this is what Jesus has come for. This is the what. What has Jesus come for? Jesus comes for sinners and forgives sinners. Jesus comes for sinners and forgives sinners. And this section I said this kind of comes in two questions. I'm going to jump on to the next question and then we'll think about what this means for us because the question is how? How can he forgive sins? How does he have any power to do that? actually, if you look at the verses, verse 21, this is the exact question that they have. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? How can he do these things that he's saying? And this is what's interesting. Jesus could say a number of answers as to why or how he can forgive sins. But he says, verse 24, that you may know that the son of man Has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus says, Because I am the Son of Man, I can do this. And I don't know, the Son of Man phrase, when we think of it, especially I think of it, you see it coming through the gospel quite a lot. And it's just kind of this. Son of Trinity, God thing, or Son of God, or he's the Christ. It's kind of, we, we all bunch them all together as to what's going on. It's almost like if you opened up a thesaurus, or you went online and typed the, thesaurus.com, and typed in the word Jesus, it would just come up with synonyms for Jesus, of Son of Man, Son of God, he's Christ, he's anointed. And they all kind of mean the same thing. And in a way, they do mean very similar things, because they're all pointing to the same person, But each one of them has this different meaning behind it. And I think it might be helpful for us to see what this meaning is. The son of man, it's almost like this hyperlink. You know, if you're going through a Wikipedia page and you're just scrolling through it and there's this blue line underneath one of the words, you click on it and it goes back to this other page that explains that far more in depth. And that's what's happening here. When he says son of man, it's like a hyperlink to the Old Testament to give us so much more weight into what he's actually saying. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. I've got it on the screen behind me. Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. And And I'm jumping back to this because I think it's helpful for us to understand fully what Jesus is saying. And also just when we read through the gospels, what he's getting at when he says, son of man. How does Jesus have authority to do this? He says, because I'm the son of man, I can do this. So this is what Daniel 7 says, I saw in the vision, in the night vision, so Daniel sees this vision, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's the phrase we're looking for, that's the phrase that we are following through, and he came, and listen to this, he came to the ancient of days. What a phrase, that's one of the phrases that you think, wow. Similar to in Exodus 3, where God says, I am what I am, I will be what I will be. This kind of Specific term that does not in any way constrain him or kind of constrict who he is. It's this reference point that we have that's helpful for us, but in no ways constrains how big he is. He is the ancient of days. So the Son of Man comes before the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. So the son of man comes before God and is given all authority. All authority is given to him that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the hyperlink that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter five. He is saying, how do I have this authority to forgive sins? Because God has given me authority to forgive sins. God has given me authority to forgive sins. and I hope you see how this is helpful. It gives us this fuller picture of who Jesus is, this understanding that he has authority given by God, not of his self, but given by God. And that's what he means when he calls himself son of man. And so when we see this, when he, the image of the paralytic, the man lying on the mat... We see that Jesus has the power to overthrow the effects of sin, the effects of the brokenness of the world that we live in and we see day in, day out. We saw it last week with the leper, we see it this week with the paralytic. It's almost this glimpse into what the kingdom of God looks like. This world with no brokenness, with no illness we see what it's like and as you go through this life of Jesus it's almost like the train of his robe brings life to the it brings a kingdom life into everywhere he goes almost like if you had this desolate picture that was black and white and gray and Jesus walked through it there's just this green colors of green shoots of grass coming up and that's what he's showing that's what he shows with the kingdom this restorative imagery of his kingdom And then what is most important, what we actually need to focus on in the passage, is that he has the power to overthrow the root cause of all that brokenness. Jesus comes to forgive sins. This doctor who comes to the poor, forgiving and ridding us of our root problem. He takes this divine scalpel to our cancerous center and removes it. One day, we like this paralytic will lie down one day and die. And if we trust in Jesus, we can stand before our maker and creator. We can stand before that ancient of days, that awesome character we hear about in Daniel 7. We can stand before him because of jesus because jesus came for our number one problem so what makes christianity fundamentally different from every other religion is that god is atop this mountain if that's the picture we have god is atop of this mountain and he steps down from the mountain to us it's not as if there's lots of different routes going up god steps down he sees our problem, sees our utter rebellion against him and he comes down the mountain to us to forgive our sins He comes to us because there is no way that we could get to him. That's what makes Christianity fundamentally different because Jesus came down to forgive us our sins and takes us back to God. That's great. That's the picture that we see with the paralytic. Jesus came to forgive sins. And then you have the second scene, verses 27 to 32, The story of this tax collector named Levi. Levi is actually the Matthew who writes the gospel. And Jesus goes to him and calls him. I think these verses sum up what Jesus is all about again. It's Adventist picture why Christianity is fundamentally different to every other belief system or religion. Because it's the who. Chapter 5, I think, hangs together as this really great unit. Verses 1 to 32 hang together as this really neat unit. Because remember, Luke is being meticulous, almost like this systematic theology of what Jesus' mission is about. That's what he's doing. He gives us a slice-by-slice picture of what Jesus is, who Jesus is, and what he's come to do. And the part that he's focusing on here is who. Who does God come down the mountain to? Who is it that can be saved Let's follow through the verses. Verses 1 to 11, we saw last week, we saw verses 1 to 16 last week, and verses 1 to 11 is this story of Simon Peter. Simon Peter is out on the boat, and he's caught nothing all night, and Jesus tells him to swing his net over the other side, and he catches lots of fish, and he comes before Jesus, and Jesus calls him to follow him, and he does. Then verses 12 to 16, we have this story. You can see it in bold in your Bible, cleansing of a leper this leper this man with this debilitating illness this outsider in the land Jesus cleanses him heals him and sends him on his way we saw earlier Jesus is in this full house with this uh, paralyzed man who can't get in and Jesus heals him of his paralysis and then just now we have this tax collector Levi he is this scum of the city He's this turn, he's almost like this anti Robin Hood character. He steals from the poor to give to the rich. He turns away from Israel, his own people, to take money from them to give to Rome, this oppressive ruler that they have, this complete outsider, scum of the city. Jesus calls him to follow him, and Levi leaves everything. Do you notice this? Do you notice what Luke is trying to do? Do you notice the similarities between all four of these scenes? They all have a problem. Peter caught no fish. The leper has leprosy. The paralytic can't walk. Levi is hated and has no friends. He's this outcast. So Jesus comes to people with real problems. But what Luke is driving at, as we saw earlier, is this bigger problem. Look at verses 30 and 32 in the story of Levi. As Jesus kind of comes to Levi, Levi throws this great big feast and the Pharisees and the scribes, the Jewish leaders, come and they grumble and say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to Repentance. Up until chapter five, there has been two mentions of sin. One of them was prophesying what Jesus was coming to do, which is forgive sin in 177. And the other one is John the Baptist and his ministry, which comes before Jesus in three chapter three, talking of this repentance that he's proclaiming from sin. And then we get bam, 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 bam. Sin, 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 sin. He comes for sinners. See this verse eight. Peter, after he's got this huge hall, Verse 8 says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The leper, the story of the leper, why is that here? This is Israel. This is Jewish land. Leprosy in these days was sin personified. It screams separation from God's people. There's two chapters in the Old Testament, Leviticus 13 and 14. They spend the entirety dedicated to the uncleanliness of leprosy. So you have Peter, the sinner. You have the leper who's the sin personified, screaming separation from God's people. In the paralytic, he says, your sins are forgiven. This is all about the people Jesus came to, and he came to sinners. That's what Luke is trying to tell us. He came to... To sin is He came for our number one problem, the biggest problem we have in this world our broken relationship with the Ancient of Days. That's what He's come for. Sam spoke about it last week. We are this rotten apple that looks nice and shiny on the outside and just degraded on the inside. That's why Jesus came. And this may be your first time hearing this, and that's great. This is what the news of Christianity is. But a lot of us have kind of grown up with these Sunday school images. We go into autopilot mode or cruise control. But he came for us. We sometimes dress ourselves up as if we're quite righteous, as if we're doing quite well. But he came for us as sinners. The most poignant question, maybe for a Scottish Christian, is when was the last time you were honest about your sin? Honest with someone else about your sin. Our inability to tell other people, I think, is because we don't want people to see what we're really like. We don't want anyone to think less of us. Our darkest secrets. And it's ridiculous because the thing we all have in common is that we're sinners in need of Jesus. In my own heart, I don't tell people about this because I don't want them to think any different things about me. I don't want them to know what I'm really like. I don't want them to know my real sin. How awful. I am how my sin eats away at me. And the irony is the thing that unifies us is that we're all sinners here today. The thing that unites us, and I think we actually do a disservice to Jesus' grace by trying to cover up our sins and not showing each other how deeply fallen we are and how great the saving of Jesus was and is the fundamental characteristic is that we are utterly detestable people in needing of God's grace and mercy. And it's great, that's what the gospel message is, is that Jesus saw us in our state. And so that means when we sin, when we fall short, we were never righteous, we've always been sinners. And when we sin, we don't have to sit in the guilt of how awful we are, of wondering if we are saved, wondering if we are Christians because the gospel message is is that we didn't clean ourselves up. The gospel message is, the good news of Jesus is that Jesus knows our very, very worst and he still came for us. That's a wonderful good news that Jesus came. The Christian message is scandalous. It doesn't make any sense. And I keep hitting this because if we fully understand the depths of which Jesus came to us, all the more we cling to Jesus' righteousness and not my own. I cling to what Jesus has done and the saving that he has brought and not my own. So when we mess up, we're no further away from God when we are acting good and obedient. And in our Sunday best, we're no closer. When we feel high or low, we remember, thank goodness, Jesus didn't come for the righteous. He came for sinners. We do strive as Christians to live godly lives, but we don't sit in the guilt of not being good enough because we'll never be good enough. Jesus came for us at our absolute very worst, knowing what nobody else knows about us, knowing the kind of the barmy we've had with the missus or shouting at our kids, Knowing how unhappy we are as we look over our garden fence and see our neighbours and the things they have, or the life that they have and the freedom and flexibility they have. Knowing our lustful hearts, wishing we weren't stuck where we were. As we chase the created things and not the creator, Jesus still came for us. That is the good news of the gospel. That is a wonderful good news. That is what makes Christianity fundamentally different is that Jesus saw our need and came down. Atop on this mountain, God came down and he calls us to follow him. I'll just finish with this. 527, he says to Levi, follow me. This is Jesus' call to every single person, every single sinner. And notice Levi's example, verse 28, leaving everything he rose and followed him. And you know what's interesting? This story appears in Matthew's gospel, in Mark's gospel, and in Luke's gospel. And in Matthew and Mark, it leaves out that phrase, he rose and followed him, leaving everything behind. Luke deliberately leaves that there. If you actually look back to Peter's calling in verse 11, Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, from now on you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Luke wants us to see this example. This man who had money, wealth, position, prestige, job security, lifestyle, comfort. And he thought Jesus was worth following over all of that. He saw this pearl of great price and he gave up everything so he could have this. This is what model discipleship, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be able to give up everything. In saying that, I'm not saying that we should all quit our work and kind of twiddle our thumbs and follow Jesus in this sort of mysterious way. I'm not saying we should all move to the mission field, not saying we should sell our car, live off nothing, set up an evangelistic stall on Bridge Road, or that everyone should become a church worker. But as messages, if you were called to do that, would you be able to? Do we hold on to these things loosely enough to be able to give up everything to follow in what Jesus has taught us? Can I? And I say this as someone who has a flat in Brunsfield and loves Project Coffee on a Monday morning just to sit by myself and have my own time and relax. Am I holding on to these things in my life loosely enough to give up everything to follow him? So the question was, what makes Christianity fundamentally different is that God came down the mountain to sinners, forgives sins. Jesus comes to us, forgives our sins, and calls us to follow him. That's what makes Christianity fundamentally different because we couldn't and can't reach him, and he still came for us, knowing our very worst, sending us on our way with the great message of Jesus you know, for certain, Jesus calls us sinners to follow him and he has absolute authority. All this is done as he is crowned on the cross of Calvary, where he forgives our sins, dealing with our biggest problems, throwing open the doors to the kingdom of heaven with a train of sinners following in his wake. That is what makes Christianity fundamentally different. Let's pray. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Love and Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is the case. We have a hope because of what Jesus has done. We are saved in what Jesus has done. And Jesus came for us, sinners. Help us know this, help us love this. Help us understand more of the depths that you came to for us. In your name, amen.